0: Now, if you are a mom or dad and you're here today or you're thinking about becoming a mom or dad or if you had a mom or dad, I think I've covered most of you, it's only a matter of time in your life. uh, Eventually, you will hear the time uh, uttered, the time-honored virtue. Don't worry about what other people have. Don't worry about what other people do. Don't worry what other people are like. Just be... So, you've heard it. Now, I think there's some good truth to that. Although, I got to tell you, my research this week as I was studying this, I ran across better advice than this um, by way of this meme here. The most important thing in life is to be yourself, unless you can be Batman. And then you should always be Batman. <laughs> Which actually highlights um, a common theme throughout this book of origins called Genesis that there's something in our shared DNA, in this desire that, that these stories have shown us, this deep desire that we have not to let God be God, but to be God ourselves. We spend an inordinate amount of time, effort, and mental energy trying to have things that we don't have or trying to be something that we aren't. This is really something almost... All of us never grow out of. I mean, many of us are going to live our whole lives. We're going to go to our graves. And I've, I worry about this sometimes with myself. We're going to live our whole lives. We're going to go to our graves and we're going to never know who we really are or who we were meant to be because we spend so much of our time trying so desperately to be somebody different To be someone that somebody else said we should be. To live up to that. And and in living that way, and I I really think that most of us live this way, we never actually discover who it is that God created us to be. So this morning I want to share with you another one of these crazy stories out of this book. If you and I were going to write down uh, our our, our family history, there is story after story in this book of Genesis that I would leave out. I wouldn't, you know, you know like the, the, you know, the, the, the crazy drunk uncle that nobody talks about, right, at the family gatherings, right? Like, I would be leaving most of these stories out. But God preserves these crazy stories, these stories at some level of shame, for us to read. Why? Why, why are they here? Well, Paul who wrote most of the New Testament, Paul, who was an early persecutor of the church of Jesus until he met him on on the street as a a, a risen God. Paul said about all of these stories we're studying, he said, these things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. So, what, what what? is the warning for today. It comes from the life of a man named Jacob. Jacob was the grandson of the great Abraham that we studied a couple of weeks ago, the father of Islam and Judaism and Christianity. They all herald Abraham as the patriarch. And this is a story of his son's son. Let me jump into it and let's see what we can learn out of it. The scripture says, the writer of Genesis, he says that Isaac, who was is Jacob's father, Abraham's son, Isaac pleaded with the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was unable to have children. The Lord answered Isaac's prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, became pregnant with twins. But the two children struggled with each other in the womb. There are no ultrasounds in Rebecca's day. There is no way to know what's going on. You knew you were pregnant the old-fashioned way. And eventually her belly grew and there was a war going on in there. Her stomach is killing her. Things are flipping around. She has no idea what the story is. She can't go to the doctor, so she went to ask the Lord about it. Why is this happening to me, she asked. And the Lord told her, this is so amazing. Here's a story written, a story of 4,000-year-old, 6,000-year-old story. And it's, it's talking about something that's still true today. The Lord told her, the sons in your womb will become two nations. From the very beginning, these two nations will be rivals. One nation will be stronger than the other, and your older son will serve your younger son. To which Rebecca said, thank you, God, because I thought it was something I ate. Right? Now I know what's going on here. Now when the time came to give birth, Rebecca discovered that she did indeed have twins. That's an exclamation point there, right? These are not fertility drug twins, right? This was an incredible revelation she was given, and it came true. The first one, is an interesting detail, was very red at birth and covered with thick hair like a fur coat. This is a face only a mother could love, right) <laughs> And so they named him Esau. And so you read that and you go, what? What do you mean, so they named him Esau? Well, Esau apparently sounds like the Hebrew word for hair. So, you know, this would be akin to, like, me coming out and my mother saying, you know, what's his name? Oh, we named him Giant Head, right? (laughs) Like, so that was Esau. And the scripture says the other twin was born with his hand grasping onto Esau's heel. So they named him Jacob, which coincidentally sounds like the Hebrew word for both heel and deceiver. Story goes on. As the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter. He was an outdoorsman. Esau, right? I mean, he's got a full-grown beard, right, at birth. Esau, he is a man's man. He's, you know, Esau is like a three-sport athlete in high school. He's really good with the chicks, which is actually true. Later in the story, you can read that. But Jacob had a quiet temperament, preferring to stay at home. Jacob is, by the world's standards, something less He doesn't sport a varsity jacket. He probably had my build in high school, would be my guess. And it turns out, in the least surprising stereotype-fulfilling line in Scripture, Isaac, dad, loved Esau, because he enjoyed eating the wild game Esau brought home. But mom, Rebecca, loved Jacob. Now, a couple things here. If you're a twin and your brother's name is literally Harry, not Harry, Harry, right? Which I would guess is kind of the modern-day equivalent to, like, Gunner, right, or steel. And your name is Deceiver. It'd be kind of like if, if your last name was Madoff and your mom named you Bernie as your first name, right? Like, don't you think if your brother's name is Gunner and your name's Deceiver that over time that's going to leave a, bit, a little bit of a mark? I mean, especially in an ancient Eastern culture where your name, remember we talked about this, where your name is more than just words. Your name represented something. It was reflective of your identity, your character, your substance, your personhood. It revealed who you are. We studied this right in the fall. We talked about God revealing himself as Yahweh and what that meant. Now imagine growing up as the second son. The brother of Thor, for all intent and purpose. I mean, he's your father's pride and joy. Esau and his dad, they hunt together. They throw the ball around together, right? He, he goes, Esau's dad goes to all his games. If you go to Esau's dad's Facebook, right, you just see like post after post about Esau and, and his wins and his victories, and Jacob, well, he cooks, right? I mean, stays home with mom. And look, Isaac's not an idiot, okay? I mean, he, he, he's a human being, so he knows the deal. He knows the right things to say. Oh, Esau, you're my boy. I love you. Jake, you too. But over time, I mean, you know, over time... Rebecca knows, Esau knows, Jacob knows. Over time, that's going to leave a mark. It's called a father wound. Many of us carry them to one degree or another. I would tell you it's probably the thing as a pastor I deal with in people's lives maybe more than any other thing. I have one, and I had a great dad. I think we all have one. It's this constant, persistent drive to either win the approval of our fathers or, or maybe to prove them wrong. Now, the reality is that, that many of us don't need to imagine Jacob's story because it's your story. I mean, you never were the jock or the cool kid. You never were the pretty girl or the skinny girl. You never were the smart one or the successful one or the one that gets all the promotions. I mean, in our towns, right, where we live, we we talked about this a little earlier today. In our towns, we value two things a lot here in Chester and Mendham. We value sports and grades. What happens if you're not all that athletic or all that academic? Like the majority of us. See, I did some research this week on this Jacob wound. It starts early. Most of us start to feel it by middle school. Sociologists, it's interesting. Um, I would say two-thirds of you know what this is like, because according to sociologists, only about a third of us in middle school fit into what is known as the cool crowd. The other two-thirds of us were kind of outsiders looking in. Interesting, though. uh, First, this is actually not just true at the high school cafeteria. This still plays itself out in the office, right? It doesn't change. Most of the so-called cool kids back in middle school, though, sociologists have, uh, have come to two conclusions about this. First is, in interviewing most of these kids, most of them are completely insecure because they know they're in the cool crowd, but they're worried they're going to be out of the cool crowd. See, when you're, when you're out of the cool crowd, you're worried that you're not in the cool crowd, and when you're in the cool crowd, you're worried about being voted out of the cool crowd. Then I did another study that showed, watched kids over time, especially about this socially dominant clique in middle school. And it turns out in something that I think is worthy of showing our our kids, if you Google it, you'll see it. It's called the curse of the cool kids. Unfortunately, I'm not gloating over this. I think that would out me as a nerd maybe. But unfortunately, over time, the cool kids actually don't do as well as the other two thirds in almost all areas areas of life. Turns out that the Revenge of the Nerds is, is more of a documentary um, than anything else. So you got this character, Jacob, and he 's struggling. Being comfortable in his own skin. It begins at birth as he wrestles, um, grabbing at the heel of his brother. It was his first wrestling match in vitro. He wanted to be the firstborn because in that culture, being the firstborn came with both um, financial gain. You were going to get more than anybody else. And the blessing of being the leader of the family, the de facto leader into the next generation. So he's wrestling for it even in the womb and he lost but he never stopped wrestling. He never stopped trying to have something he didn't or try to, try to be something that he wasn't. Soon after the story, uh, the writer tells us that while Esau, they, they, they've now grown up, Esau, he's out doing what manly men do. and Jacob was home in the kitchen doing what his mom taught him. He's cooking. And he must have been some cook, Because Esau comes home from hunting and he's so hungry that Jacob actually gets him to exchange his valuable birthright. The one that Jacob tried to get from him in the womb. He gets him to exchange it for what amounts to a bowl of stew. And this grasping to be like Esau. The desire to make a name for himself continues. When we next see the two Isaac, their father, is now old and blind. And he believes he's near death. And so he calls his his boy Esau in to give him the blessing that's rightly due the firstborn son. But before he does, he sends him out to prepare one last father-son bonding moment. Tells him to go out and hunt down some wild game like in the old days so that he can make for his dad his favorite meal, And that provides just enough time for Rebecca, the mom, to hatch a plan and begrudgingly get Jacob's approval to go along. It's a pretty funny story. They cook up a meal quickly together. The scripture says they covered Jacob. Remember, Jacob is a very soft-skinned young man. They covered Jacob in goat hair. This is how hairy Harry was. (laughs) They, They covered Jacob in goat hair so that he feels like Esau to his dad's touch, and they slide Jacob in first to steal Esau's blessing. The plot culminates with a question. Scripture says, so Jacob took the food to his father. My father, he said. Yes, my son, Isaac answered. Who are you? Who are you? Esau or Jacob? And Jacob replied, it's Esau, your firstborn son. See, Jacob put directly on the spot, who are you? What's your name? He grasps for heel again. He's trying to get something he didn't have. He's trying to be something that he wasn't. A short time later, Esau, many of you know the story, Esau heads in with with the kill. Uh, He he makes his father the meal, but Isaac realizes he's been tricked. Esau is furious. In fact, he sums up the situation this way. No wonder his name is Jacob because he's cheated me twice. First, he took my rights as the firstborn. Now he's stolen my blessing. You know, this is really interesting. If you think about this, guys, In the womb, it was Jacob trying to get something he didn't have and to be something he wasn't. In the kitchen with the stew, it was Jacob trying to get something he didn't have to be something he wasn't. But in this last part, it's Rebecca pushing Jacob to be something he wasn't. I mean, could you wrap your your mental arms? Could you imagine a family... A culture so sick and twisted that a parent would actually push a kid this hard? Could you imagine putting pressure on a child like this to achieve or perform or to have something or to be something maybe that they weren't? Aren't you glad things have changed? How could we possibly relate to this ancient story But these things were written for you as an example and a warning. Well, Jacob, he winds up on the run trying to save his life from Esau, who now wants to kill him. And on the way to hide out at his uncle's house, we actually get a little glimpse at the heart of Jacob, which I think is a little glimpse at the heart of all of us who spend so much time trying to make a name for ourselves. God comes to Jacob and he gives him His identity. He gives him a plan. He gives him a story. He comes to Jacob and he says, Jacob, I am giving to you the same thing I promised your father Abraham, the same thing I promised your father Isaac. I am going to make you a three part promise. He says, I'm going to give you this land, I'm going to multiply your descendants, and I'm going to make you and your family great. Jacob, this is who you are. This is who you were meant to be, to which Jacob responds with a vow. He says, well, if God will indeed be with me and protect me on this journey, and if he'll provide me with food and clothing, and if I return safely from my father's home, well, then the Lord certainly will be my God. Well, isn't that big of him? God, I'm down here making a name for myself. I kind of got a plan going on. Things I want to have, things I want to be. So if you wouldn't just mind blessing this plan, giving me what I want, letting me decide for myself who I am, letting me define for myself who I am, that would be perfect. And if you would just do that, well, then you could be my God. Which is kind of ironic because then he would actually just be his own God. These things were written as an example for you, and as, as a warning. So a funny thing happens to Jacob in his desperate attempt to make a name for himself, to have something he didn't have, to be something he wasn't meant to be. He makes a pretty big mess of his life. His desire to build the kingdom of Jacob, it winds up hurting a lot of people, drawing them into the mess, not the least of which was Jacob. His story is kind of long and twisted. While on the run from his brother Esau, who's trying to kill him, he winds up tricked himself, deceived himself into being both a slave and marrying the wrong woman. And then he winds up with two wives... And then he favors one over the other. He has all kinds of kids. There's all kinds of jealousy and family dysfunction. And after being deceived, he winds up deceiving his uncle out of his fortune and on the run from his uncle. So now he's on the run from his brother who he deceived. He's on the run from his uncle who he deceived. He's physically exhausted. At one point, he he, he hits rock bottom. The Scripture says that Esau is coming right at him and he gets scared. Alone in the desert, facing likely death. He's divested of all his possessions. He sends his two wives off and he says, listen, go find my brother and try to give him all this stuff and maybe he'll leave me alone. With his father-in-law behind him, Esau before him, he's too spent to struggle any longer. And just then is when the struggle starts. It's a crazy story, but the scripture says this. This left Jacob all alone in the camp without anything. And a man came and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. And when the man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of its socket. And then the man said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you you bless me. Interesting, right? The writer does not reveal who this man that jumped Jacob is, but later on, Jacob and the man do. In what many theologians believe is actually the pre-incarnate Jesus, Jacob, a mere mortal, has a wrestling match with God. And for some reason, God, who could obviously win? We see that just at his touch. He dislocates his hip. God could have won any time he wants. Instead, it's God that initiates the wrestling match, and it's God that allows the wrestling match. He initiates the wrestling match, and he allows the wrestling match to go on and on and on and on all night long. Paul says these stories were written down for us as examples. See, many of the, truth, the truth for many of us is we don't need an example of what it's like to struggle with God for a day, a week, an hour, a year. If you've been around the church, you've heard this story. Have you ever wondered what it is they're wrestling over? Like, what are they wrestling over? It never says. Theologians debate it a lot. But I think, I think it's revealed by God's familiar question that comes next in the story. What's your name? What's your name? Which in Jacob's world was more than a name. It was the same question his father had asked him years before. Who are you? It's the same question Jacob has been wrestling with his entire life. The one which began in the womb. Jacob, who are you? Are you Esau? Are you the product of your own invention, Jacob? Are you the sum total of your accomplishments? Jacob, your stuff, your schemes, your ploys, your successes, your now failures, I mean, is the right answer for Jacob what? What's the right answer for you? Who are you? Are you a banker, dentist, electrician, plumber? See, I feel like Jacob, he's wrestling with God for a blessing. But I think that God is blessing Jacob with the wrestling. Because he's wrestling for an identity. Which got me thinking yesterday, maybe the story that weaves its way through origins here, maybe the theme of all these stories, you see the gospel of Jesus weaved into all of them. Maybe what God has been trying to save us from is not just hell. Maybe what the story of Jesus and the gospel represents is God not just saving us from hell, but actually saving us from ourselves. Because think about how much of our mess, how much of your mess is caused by your inability to answer the question put to Jacob, who are you? One writer I read this week related the story of Jacob to Peter's story at the end of John's gospel. Some of you know it. Soon after Jesus' resurrection, he's sharing a meal with Peter and some of the other disciples. And he says, he looks at Peter and he says, Peter, I'm going to give you a special responsibility. Jesus is going to allow him to lead his followers after he's gone. Jesus gives him this calling to lead the church, this identity, this vocation, this purpose for his life. And then Jesus says, Peter, follow me. And what is Peter's response to to this new identity and purpose-revealing moment? He looks around, sees the other disciples, specifically John, and says this, what about him? But what about him, Lord? And Jesus replied, look, it's... If I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? you? As for you, you follow me. You see, Jacob, right, he looks around and he sees Esau, and he says, what about him? And Peter, Peter looks around sees John, and he goes, what about him? We look around trying so hard to figure out who we are, trying so hard to fit in, to look the right way, to have the right things, to be like others, You know, it doesn't end in the high school cafeteria. We try to fulfill, so many of us are trying to fulfill what others have told us we should be, trying to live up to their hopes and their expectations. And the whole time, Jesus keeps inviting us to find ourselves, to discover ourselves, to find our lives by losing them, by laying them down and following him Jesus is saying, let me define you for you. You see, Esau has his path, Jacob. You see, John has his path, Peter. You see, the cool kid, yeah, he's got his path. The skinny, beautiful girl, she's got her path. The jock, the rich guy, the healthy guy, They all have their paths, but what is that to you? Because you have yours. You have a God-given identity, not a man-made one. And see, that's the deal. Being yourself—the advice your mom and dad gave you—it is not something we don't go off to find ourselves. You don't find yourself. It's being being who you were meant to be is something that's formed. It's not hidden somewhere. Your identity is a project. It's not a puzzle. You are something you become, not something you find. How do you do this? Jesus said, follow me. It's a process, it's not a revelation. Being yourself, being the me you were meant to be is about intentional formation, not merely some self-discovery. The answer is not to be yourself, the answer is to be who he created you to be. Summed it up this way, don't worry about him or her. Don't worry about what mom or dad said you had to be and achieve. Jesus says, come here, come here, look over here. You. You. Follow me and find yourself in me. There's an early story in the book of John. Jesus runs into a a man named Simon. He was described as Simon, son of John. And the scripture says, I love how it describes it, it says that Jesus looked intently at him and said, your name is Simon, son of John. But from now on, you're going to be called Peter. Because on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And Jacob, when all the wrestling is done, now listen, when all the wrestling is done, when when all of the wrestling is finally done, he's asked, What's your name? Who are you? And Jacob answers, I'm Jacob. He's struggled, he's broken, but he's done pretending. He's not trying to beat Esau anymore, he's not trying to beat anybody else. At the end of all the wrestling, he says, Look, my name is Jacob. I'm the grasper. I'm the deceiver. I'm the I'm the manipulator. I'm the betrayer. And then God says, No, you're not. Your name will no longer be Jacob. From now on, your name is going to be called Israel because you have fought with God and with men. And you've won. It's an event that Frederick Buchner called the magnificent defeat of the human soul at the hands of God. Guys, the alternative to, to, to wanting to be someone else is not to be yourself. It's to become the who, the you that God sees, to become God's version of you. It's the choice to allow God to be God, not only to define for you what's right and what's wrong and what's good and evil. It is the choice to allow God to define who you are. Now, next weekend I'm going to be heading down to Atlantic City. Yeah, let me see that. Next week, I'm gonna be heading down to Atlantic City. My nephew, um, yesterday, he's my godson. I like to think his athletic ability flows from my side of the family. Um, He uh, he became uh, he's Morris County wrestling champion. He's two-time district champion. He is now two-time regional champion. Um, and so he'll be wrestling in Atlantic City next weekend. is a big thing for our family. My son Caleb, two years ago, had the same honor. He was allowed to go down to Atlantic—well, he wasn't allowed. He, he earned his way through a lot of work to go down to Atlantic City and wrestle in Atlantic City. It's, it's quite an event. There's 10,000 people watching these high school kids wrestle. When Caleb achieved this, I got a call from the school because the school said, hey, this is a big honor. We make T-shirts for the kids um, we're going to make T-shirts with uh, you know the, the West Mars thing on the front. If you'd like, we'll put your name on the back. And I said, "If I like." I said, <laughs> I said, "How big could you make that name on the back? Is it, po- <laughs> is it possible to, to make this any bigger? Um, because in my mind, it's like, you know, this says something about me about. Me as a dad and me as a man, and, and, and my kid is wrestling down here. And, and I spend a lot of my time, I'm a 50 year old man, I spend a lot of my time worrying about the name that's on the back of the jersey, man, like trying to make it. I care way too much what you think about me. The Lord is teaching me through this series things. Like maybe, maybe you should start letting me be your identity. So I thought about that story this week and, and the t-shirt, and uh, I was reminded of, and, and the Winter Olympics are closing tonight, right? And so this seems, seems like it fits in well here. Um, anybody see the movie Miracle about the 1980 U.S. hockey team? I don't even remember when the kids first gathered, this before they were professionals. They gather, and Herb Brooks, who's kind of this crusty old coach of the Olympic team, he gathers them all up together, and he asks them a question in the room. Does anybody remember what the question is? Yeah, this concept of who are you. And the kids answer, well, this is my name, this is who I play for, this is my accomplishment, this is the school that I got into, this is the team that I've been part of. Do you know, what? let me explain to all the rest of you guys in the room, I want you to know who I am, because this way, if, if I can get my identity right, you'll start to think the certain way about me. Later on in the movie, um, the team plays, and it doesn't play all that well, and uh, they have a horrible loss and so uh the crusty old herb brooks as the kids are getting ready to go back into the locker room and call it a night the crusty old herb brooks meets him out on the ice and this is what happens you guys don't want to work during the game no problem we'll work now go on that one. on talent alone gentlemen you don't have enough talent to win on talent alone again one of you, when you pull on that jersey, you represent yourself and your teammates. And a name on the front is a hell of a lot more important than the one on the back. Get that through your head! Again! Everybody get on that line. Hey! Again. again Herb. come on Craig little was it again <coughs> Michael we With through Massachusetts you play for play for the United States of America That's all gentlemen It's a modern day all night wrestling match and it changes their identity. And so the question is, who are you? What's your name? My name's John Eisman. For a long time I've been trying to build up the name on the back of my jersey. So you'd think a certain thing about me. But really I'm coming to believe that all that really matters is my name is John Eisman. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And slowly, after long nights of wrestling, I'm starting to believe that his ways are better. I'm starting to allow him to be God again and to define for me what's right and what's wrong and what's good and what's evil and to define for me, his ways for me, his plan for me. Because the truth is, his name is a heck of a lot more important than mine. And so Father, over your people this morning, who are so tired of striving, so tired of trying to be a certain thing and look a certain way, so tired of trying to get things that we don't have or be things that we weren't meant to be, would you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, allow that to just let people feel that fall off of their shoulders and allow them to start to think who they are is not defined by what they have, what they do, who they are, is defined by being sons and daughters of the Most High God, and in that they have everything, and they are everything. In the great name of Jesus, I pray.